Well, good morning, church family. Over the past three weeks, we've been studying the doctrine of the Eucharist, and we've been asking a few important questions. First of all, what does the Bible teach about communion? Second of all, how has the church approached that subject over the past 2,000 years? And then third, what is our conviction here at Oak Hill about how the Lord's table should be practiced? Now, if you were with us last Sunday, you know that we spent about 30 minutes talking about what I called the River of Reformation that started to flow in the early 16th century. And we looked at the four major streams that came out of that river, uh, both in Europe and then eventually coming over to America. And those four streams were the Lutherans, the Anabaptists, the Classic Reformed, which of course included both the Swiss and the Dutch Reformed and the Scottish Presbyterians, and then finally the Anglicans, or what we call the Church of England. Now, a few of you reached out to me last week because you noticed there was something missing from our history lesson. And you were right. There was one big missing piece and some big names that were left out. So good job for noticing. So today we're going to fill out the picture by looking at the one thing I didn't touch on last Sunday, and that is the evangelical movement. And of course, that's sort of ironic because many of us would say that's our tribe within the Christian world. So here's the question. What is evangelicalism and where did it come from? Well, it's an interesting study because it has quite a substantial history, and yet it's really difficult to nail down an exact definition of what an evangelical is. Now, the main reason for that is that evangelicalism has been referred to as transdenominational, meaning it goes beyond typical denominational lines. So technically, you could pull together in one room a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Lutheran, and a person who calls themselves non-denominational, and they could all say, we're evangelicals, and that can be confusing. Now, the word itself comes from the biblical word for gospel in the original Greek language. It's pronounced euangelion. So in a purely definitional way, an evangelical is a person or a church that's primarily concerned with the gospel. So that's a good thing, right? By the way, the concept does stretch all the way back to the Reformation, not in a formal way, but in this sense. Some of the earliest reformers were said to go about gospeling people. That's the phrase they use, gospeling them as they shared the good news about salvation by faith alone. So back in that day, the word was used as a verb. But it was the English Puritans who truly began to embody the word evangelical itself. They were the ones who actually brought it across the Atlantic to our shores. And then as the Puritan movement faded away, the term was picked up by other groups like Congregationalists and Baptists and Presbyterians, all these different denominations that were established in the late colonial period. Then we come to what's known as the First Great Awakening, which took place in the 1730s and 1740s, and most historians pinpoint this moment as the truest root of the evangelical movement. Some of the greatest preachers in history were active in this time, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield in particular. And in those days, many Christians had fallen into an overly formal, sort of mechanical faith, and it was this old-fashioned town-to-town revival work done by men like Edwards and Whitfield which woke early Americans out of their slumber. Thus, we have the term awakening. It woke them up. Now, interestingly, the First Great Awakening was marked by Calvinist theology, which had been passed down by the Puritans. But the American church would soon shift towards a different perspective, towards an Arminian view of salvation, which interpreted the spread of the gospel in America as a man-centered event combined with a free will response. Now, some of that was driven by John Wesley, very famous name, and his highly structural view of the Christian life, which became known as Methodism. Today we have the Methodist Church. Wesley focused on developing a step-by-step method 
of achieving holiness, and that's where we get the Methodist Church today. Then came the Second Great Awakening, about 50 years after the first, and just prior to the Civil War. Charles Finney was the primary man who was responsible as the spark of the Second Awakening. He was a strong proponent of Arminianism, and he's often credited with being the inventor of what we call the altar call. And like Wesley, he believed strongly in the idea that a Christian could grow to become spiritually sinless and perfect in his lifetime. Then there were men like Barton Stone and Thomas and Alexander Campbell who took the gospel west into the expanding frontier, and they put an emphasis on simplifying the faith, launching a movement that today is known as the Church of Christ. So even though preachers in both of those two awakenings had differences in theology and came from different denominational backgrounds, their efforts collectively are said to be evangelical. So looking back, the word evangelical becomes synonymous with a few basic principles. Number one, the idea of Holy Spirit-led revivals. Number two, the authority of the Bible. Number three, an emphasis on being born again. And number four, the urgent need for evangelism and missions. And as a result of that fourth emphasis, the 19th century became known as the great century of global missions led by evangelicals. So missionaries were sent forth from both Europe and America to faraway places like India and Burma and China. So missions were huge in that time. Plus, during this period, you had Christian publishing that became a force for the gospel through mass production of books and also gospel tracts. Now, in the midst of all this gospel activity, a series of challenges also rose up in the middle of the 19th century. Charles Darwin published his Origin of Species in 1859. And so this, this push towards evolution then drove what came to be known as a period of higher criticism of the Bible. That was a very aggressive secularism that stood in judgment over the scriptures, calling into question everything from biblical miracles to the life of Jesus himself. And sadly, that higher criticism movement produced all kinds of variant streams of liberal theology. Now, there was pushback against this, and that came from a variety of evangelical sources, including Dwight L. Moody and his Bible Institute in Chicago, and some brilliant scholars out of, of all places, Princeton University. You, you can't imagine that Princeton University was once a gospel-oriented school, but it was. Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield, brilliant scholars who defended and fought for the integrity of the Bible. With the turn of the 20th century, we have the Pentecostal movement, which was born right here in Los Angeles on Azusa Street in the year 1906. And then in the 1920s, we saw a sharp split take place in the evangelical church that we are still feeling today. Some Christians felt it was time to let go of biblical inerrancy and embrace this new science of evolution, and they moved away from evangelicalism. And historians call this the break between the modernists and the fundamentalists. And the modernists matriculated into the mainline denominations, embracing various forms of liberal theology, while the fundamentalists stood firm in their evangelical ideas. Now, problem with the fundamentalists was increasingly the world began to see them as angry and hostile all the time. And people started asking questions, is that really what Jesus has called us to be? Are we supposed to be separatists that go around wagging our fingers and judging everyone and everything around us? And so after World War II, the pendulum swung hard back towards evangelicals who embodied a much more positive, upbeat image back to the idea of revivals and crusades. And of course, Billy Graham played a huge role in that movement. 
Plus, you had magazines being being published now like Christianity Today and a huge outreach to teenagers called Youth for Christ. And so in that period, evangelicalism once again became popular. But then the culture took a very shocking and sharp turn away from Christianity with the coming of the Vietnam War and the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And what's interesting about church history here is when you take a step back, you begin to see that there's this constant action and reaction tendency. We swing the pendulum. Culture goes this way, the church goes that way, and it goes back and forth. So that chaos of the 1960s and into the 70s brought a counter-reaction among evangelicals in the form of a movement called the Moral Majority, led by Jerry Falwell Sr. And that was followed by a renewed emphasis on restoring not just morality in public life, but also restoring the concept of biblical families. So we saw the formation of, for example, James Dobson's focus on the family and the creation of what's called the Family Research Council. Then came the 1980s, everybody's favorite decade, at least if you're my age, a decade which saw a number of massive shifts in, in the evangelical world. First of all, there was the so-called charismatic movement that caught fire. And the charismatic movement was just Pentecostalism light. And so it brought a much more subtle and acceptable form of Pentecostalism into evangelical circles, and it began to penetrate that movement. With it came a renewed emphasis on contemporary praise and worship music, and most, pop most popular was the great Hillsong movement that came out, and suddenly everybody in the church was singing Hillsong songs. Then in the 80s and 90s produced what came to be known as the seeker-sensitive church movement. Through huge entertain entertainment-based megachurches, like Willow Creek outside of Chicago and Saddleback Church in Orange County. And the emphasis in the seeker-sensitive movement was on the church trying to meet people's felt needs. So the church felt like we need to go out and find out why people aren't coming to church and then, then arrange our church to meet those people's felt needs. And the thinking was, if you can draw people into the church by meeting their needs using things like entertainment and prosperity as the draw, they'll keep coming back and eventually come to know Jesus. Now, that's a lot of history, and most people don't know a lot about it, but today, if you were to walk outside and ask the average person on the street, what is an evangelical, he or she is likely to think, first of all, in terms of politics. They will point to which political party we support and which candidates we support, and friends, that is a very, very sad development. Now, last Sunday, I talked about how here at Oak Hill, we are theological mutts. We don't really belong in any one stream of the Reformation. We're sort of a, a hybrid church, which is driven very simply by what the Bible teaches and our conviction of how those principles should be lived out in the body. And because of the current state of evangelicalism in America, we're not all that enthusiastic about referring to ourselves in that way anymore. I mean, let's be honest. Most of the evangelical church today is a mile wide and only about an inch deep. And it has suffered greatly from decades of neglect in the areas of doctrine, of sound teaching, and discipleship. Historically, we've laid aside this robust theology, this rich history that we have, and we've picked up the tools of the world instead, thinking they would be the thing to draw people to Jesus. So we've, we've, di we've dipped into entertainment and celebrity culture and comfort and casualness and worldly standards of success. And what we've reaped from all that is a reputation that is not good a reputation for hypocrisy and a lack of seriousness. Some of that is deserved, some of it is driven by a hostile media, but either way, it's a great shame because there is so much of what is good and biblical in evangelical history. It just seems to be like ancient history now. So as I said last Sunday, what we want to be here at Oak Hill is an independent Bible church 
that grabs hold of what is biblically sound in our spiritual heritage and reject what is proven to be shallow and unhelpful. And by the way, we've been doing that for about the past 10 years or so. It hasn't been easy, but we've been firming up what we believe in order to become more biblical, more attuned to church history, and healthier as a body. And one of the ways we've done that is through our emphasis on membership and our view of how the communion table should be guarded. And that is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. So grab your Bibles and let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm not going to read the whole uh, passage together today because I'm short on time, but I'll be referencing some key passages in this chapter right between verses 17 and 34. So just keep your phone open. All right. Recall last week I laid out what takes place when we come to the Lord's table. Specifically, we talked about the spiritual presence of Christ found in the signs that have been given to us, the bread and the cup. And we talked about our posture towards the Lord when we come to His table, not as a shamed people bringing Him an offering, but as a thankful people who receive gifts from His loving hand. So that was last week. Today is about who should come to the supper and how they should come. That's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, keep in mind that 1 Corinthians was written as a corrective letter. Paul's doing two things as he writes to the church in Corinth. First, he was answering a series of questions that had been posed to him about practical matters. And then second, he was addressing some serious problems that had come up in the life of the church. So a lot of this section of Scripture is about rebuking and correcting. Now, one of the problems that he's addressing, and it's a big one, was how communion was being administered and observed there in Corinth. Here's the good news. They were living out the sacrament as Christ had instructed. But the bad news was they had strayed so far from its true meaning and purpose. In fact, this problem was so serious that according to Paul, it had resulted in drastic disciplinary measures on God's, God's part. Because of their failure, some members of the church had grown weak and sick and others had actually died. Think about that for a second. In a, in a thinking world, that kind of news would bring a response like this. Wow, how did the Corinthians fail here? Whatever it was, that should be our number one priority to make sure we don't fail in the same way. And since it would result in actual death, you had to think at the time, this must be the most serious of all matters, right? It's got to be something about murder or rape or kidnapping or, or at least adultery, right? But the answer is no, none of those things. Paul says that God has disciplined his people physically, even taken their lives for this reason because they had come to the Lord's table and participated in an unworthy manner. And therefore, he says, they are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. This sin, whatever it is, is so heinous that this failure it lumps people into the same category as those who put Jesus on the cross. Think about that. So we better figure out what this means. Whatever it is to come to the table in an unworthy manner, it requires serious consideration for both churches and for church leadership. Right? And I don't think we've done a lot of, of work on this. We haven't really taken it as seriously as we should. But we better get this right or get it corrected if we're in error. So, key question, why was the Corinthians' conduct so offensive to God? The answer to that question lies in the true meaning of the supper and in the Lord's great love for His body, the church. So when you read a passage of Scripture like this, the best, best thing to do when you're looking for a reason is to look at what it actually says and then keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing here has to do 
with the unity of the body. The unity of the body. So hear me carefully as I say this, because it's a huge misconception that many, many Christians have today. The reason God disciplined the believers in Corinth was not because they were spiritually unworthy to come to his table. The reason behind God's severity was the distinct lack of unity and love in that church. Let me say it again. The distinct lack of unity and love in that church was exemplified by their actions at the communion table. Look at verse 17. Paul says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. So underline that word divisions. Divisions in the church, cliques of people, unresolved conflict between believers, factionalism on display in the midst of what should be one of the most sacred moments in the life of the church. And Paul's language here is very strong. He says, like, if you're going to act like this, if what you're doing reflects what's truly in your heart, it would be better if you didn't gather at all. You're hurting members of your own spiritual family, your brothers and sisters in the Lord, and you're doing damage to the reputation of Christ and the testimony of His church. It would be better if He didn't come together. And drop down to verse 20. He says, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, one is hungry and another is drunk. That is shocking stuff, isn't it? Your gluttony is showing, Paul writes, your lack of self-control, your inability to moderate your appetites. And all those things are immature and foolish, absolutely. But listen, here's the core of it. You just don't care about each other. That's the core. You care only for yourselves. I'm hungry, so I'll eat my fill. This wine is delicious, so pour me another cup. Your fellow church members don't figure into your decisions. And therefore, he says, you may think you're eating the Lord's Supper, but you're not. There's nothing supernatural, nothing spiritual happening at all because you've nullified its meaning and its power. And then if you look a little deeper, there's something even more wicked happening beneath that raw self-centeredness. Look at verse 22. He says, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame or humiliate those who have nothing? So now we see it's also an economic issue, a class issue there in Corinth. It seems that there is this upper crust of people, the wealthier elites in the church, and they're arriving at the meal early and indulging themselves without considering their poorer members. These are the ones who didn't have the freedom to arrive early at the meal. Probably people that are working long hours, blue-collar type workers working long hours, or even some who are stuck in indentured slavery. So imagine for a second, already feeling like a second-class citizen in the church because of your your economic level, and then you arrive excited for the, the supper as soon as you possibly can, expecting to worship and fellowship, only to find out that the others have started without you. And now there's nothing but scraps left. There is blatant inequality going on in the church at Corinth. And so this is appalling to Paul. And that's why he says, do you despise the church? Strong language. So there's a reason why early on in the life of the church, James even warned about this very very same thing. He talked about favoritism in the worship service. And there's a reason why we have the story of Paul rebuking Peter. Remember, Paul wrote that prior to the coming of certain men, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. 
But when these Jews came, he began to withdraw, fearing a backlash from them. So Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He was deviating from the truth of the gospel. So Paul viewed Peter's sin as a blatant attack, an affront to the gospel, and he wasn't going to put up with it. So that's the type of stuff that's happening here in Corinth. Now, don't miss this too. This is part of Paul's rebuke because it's often overlooked. Look at verse 18. He says, when you come together as a church, that noun, ecclesia, is written in the singular, a church. That means he's describing the communion table as everybody together, the whole body at one time together. And that's the pattern throughout Scripture, one body, one gathering. And that's reinforced. If you look down at verse 33, it's reinforced in this summary exhortation at the bottom of the passage. Verse 33, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. Very simple, right? The question is, how can a local church, which is, which is designed by God to be one interconnected body, how can they launch into a celebration of the Lord's Supper when only part of the church has arrived? And frankly, in my mind, that raises the question about large churches today with multiple services. They say they're one body and they, they say we're coming together as one, and yet they don't even know each other because they don't come together in one place. Okay, let's talk about the self-examination piece then in verses 27 and 28, because this is where Christians tend to get a little bit confused. They, 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 they think they know what Paul's talking about, but they're often mistaken. Verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Here it is. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat the bread and drink the cup. Now, the average Christian, when, he, when they read unworthy manner and must examine himself, we immediately think of our private, personal sins. We think about all the ways that God must be very angry with us because we've fallen so short in our walk with him. So our thinking usually goes something like this. Okay, we rub our hands, we get all upset, and we go, before I come to the table, I better be all prayed up. I better remember and confess everything and be as pure as I possibly can before I partake. Otherwise, I'm going to be judged by God. Oh, and if I don't feel pure enough in that moment, well, then I have to withdraw from the table and just let the elements pass by. That's the way we often think. But there is a glaring theological problem with that way of thinking. Notice that idea that I just mentioned. It's not found anywhere in 1 Corinthians 11. It's not there. That is a self-imposed concept that has been taught and retaught for far too long. In fact, it was taught to me, and I believed that for many, many years. And frankly, for many Christians, that has made the Lord's Supper a very joyless affair, where we come and we beat ourselves up and we wallow in shame rather than come to actually commune with the Lord and to be nourished by Him. Now, as I shared last week, I'm not saying that confession of sin doesn't matter when we come to the table. It certainly does. What I'm saying is, is that repentance and confession is supposed to be an everyday thing, a moment-by-moment -moment thing, not just something we do when we come to the supper. And by the way, we dare not tread where the Catholic Church lives, holding to the idea of penance, where the sinner, before he can come to the table, has to go out and do a list of things to somehow work off their sin so that we're deemed worthy to commune with God. That is unbiblical. No, repentance is a changing of the mind. It's a coming into agreement with God about our sin. And we can do that in an instant when we look to Him. Even as the elements are being distributed, we can cry out to God, acknowledge our weakness, and come to His throne with confidence, 
precisely because Christ gave up his body and blood for us. That's the truth. Our sin should drive us towards Christ, not make us withdraw, because his table is for sinners like you and me. And when we come to the table, we don't bring a sacrificial offering to God other than ourselves. We are actually the offering, living sacrifices. Like the disciples in that upper room, we allow Christ to be the host of the meal and we receive gifts of grace from his hand. Grace that reminds us of his love for us. Grace that reaffirms all of his promises towards us. Grace that will nourish our souls and strengthen our faith. And in that sense, we really do feed upon him spiritually as we partake in his body and blood. So let me summarize this. This is really important. This warning in verses 27 and 28 is not about how deeply and thoroughly I can examine my heart in relation to my personal sin and confession. Based on the context of this chapter, it is a warning to examine ourselves in relation to how we are operating in the local body. That is so important to know. Look at the verse, look, next verse, verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. That's what we're afraid of, right? But look what it says. If he does not judge the body rightly. Well, what body are we talking about here? Well, there's two bodies involved with the Lord's Supper, right? First of all, the sign of the bread points us to the reality of Christ's literal body, which is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. And second, his body here on earth, which is what? The church. So judge the body rightly, Paul says. That means this. Understand what the meal points to, Christ's body, and then make sure you understand the high value that Jesus places on his body on earth, the church. So here's some good self-examination questions to ask when you come to the table. Do I understand that the church is Christ's body and bride and therefore deserving of the highest level of honor and respect? Does my life in the church reflect an active love for my brothers and sisters? Am I involved in a form of division or part of a clique in my church? Am I holding on to a grudge against another person in my church family? Am I living a life in the body that is self-centered or other-centered? This is what Paul is trying to get at in 1 Corinthians 11. These are the things that need to be repented of and potentially repaired in a tangible way before partaking of the family meal. So this is why we let you know when communion is coming. If you have two or three weeks and you know it's coming, you have time now to take whatever steps are necessary to repair any divisions in the body. Now, I realize that very few Christians today would act like the Corinthians did in our text in the first place, we don't usually combine communion with a real agape feast where a full dinner is served. So you're not going to see Christians today gorging themselves or getting drunk at communion. But listen, here's how we can fall into the very same error. We can wrongly come to believe that the Lord's Supper is just an individual thing between me and God. That's it. So communion is when I come to the table and I get right with God. It's when I purify myself through confession, and then I go, I try to picture Jesus taking the nails and bleeding on the cross, and then I feel bad, and I thank him for his sacrifice. Oh, and it's great that there's others here with me, but really the focus is on my worship and on my relationship with the Lord. That is not the picture Jesus drew for us in the upper room, and it's not the picture Paul is painting here in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, again, I'm not trying to say that the Lord's table has no connection to the individual. Of course it does, because we're all individually responsible for our spiritual life with Jesus. But a narrow individualist mindset doesn't reflect the full picture of how we're to live out a life of worship. 
give you an example of this. Here's how you and I should think of our time together. When we walk into a church service like this morning, here's what we should be thinking. The people around me today are my truest family. And together we make up God's people at Oak Hill. Our hearts are being knit together more and more as we sing with one voice, as we pray with one heart, as we sit together under the word being preached so that together we grow stronger as a spiritual force in this community and beyond. That's how we should be thinking. Now, if that was your mindset when you came in today, I praise the Lord for that. But to be honest, most Christians are closer to this mindset. I wonder what I'm going to get out of the worship today. I wonder what God's going to show me in the sermon. How am I going to be built up and encouraged? That's the wrong mindset. Or it could be worse. I'm not comfortable in this seat. I don't really like this song. The sermon isn't connecting with me. Or I'm annoyed by these people over there. Yikes, right? See, I think it's possible that some of the, the first century Corinthians, they were, attacked, they were taken back by Paul's rebuke here because they were blind to it. My guess is some of them were thinking, Paul, what do you mean despise the church? We love this church. This church is perfect for us. I love the way we worship. I love our feasts. I eat my fill. I get, I get to drink. It's all fantastic. Why would we despise this church? It's actually quite easy to become blinded by our own self-centeredness. And yes, it's possible to love being a part of Oak Hill, to love coming to worship, to love being part of church events, and still, in the eyes of God, despise His church because you put the priority on yourself and you've neglected the body as a whole. We should never lose sight of the truth that together we are both the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. And if you're not actively cherishing the bride, how can you say that you truly love the groom? Okay, so let's bring this back to the Lord's Supper. Know this, in the previous chapter, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks of a loaf that's broken at the Lord's table. And he says this, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. One, 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 right? So the entire church is to gather in unity as one body, acting as one loaf of bread without the leaven of division or strife in their midst. Here's part of what that means. That means that this meal is not for unbelievers. It's not for unbelievers. Now, we love when unbelievers are here with us on Sunday morning in worship. We love when unbelievers come to our small groups during the week. We treasure those opportunities to show them Christ's love in those situations. But communion is altogether different. It is set apart as a time of intimate fellowship reserved only for those who are members of Christ. As we say here at Oak Hill, it's a family meal. So here's a logical question that follows everything that I've shared thus far from this chapter. How, how can a church make sure that we're coming to the Lord's table as one, as only believers with no division, no strife, and that we don't defile the table and put the souls of our people at risk? How do we do that? Let me, let me run that through again. How do we come together making sure that only believers are there, that there's no division or strife among us, and that we don't defile the table and put the souls of our people at risk. How do we do that? Well, I want you to imagine for a second being the pastor of a church. Okay, Think about a typical communion Sunday morning, typical church. Imagine you're the pastor at the front, and, and you're explaining communion, and the elements are about ready to go out. Now, imagine you're the pastor, and you know your sheep really well. Okay, You know what's happening in the body, and you give them this warning about making sure they judge the body rightly. Right? And you look out at your congregation, and the elements go out, and they start getting passed, 
And what do you see? Well, there's two people I know in the back that are, are hating on each other right now. Right? They're, they have unresolved conflict. Then there's this group up here, and they're sort of cliquish. I know they have a long-standing problem with this group over here. And I know that there's a guy here and a guy over there. They're not believers yet. We're glad they're here, but they're not believers. And then there's some new folks I see. They're visitors. I have no idea who they are or what their spiritual condition is. Okay, so I'm dealing with all that, and there go the elements, and everybody's partaking of communion. What do you do as a shepherd? Do you walk up and snatch the elements out of their hands and tell them they got to go outside and then continue without them? That would be rude. Well, maybe you just give that warning and you hope for the best, right? Hope that they'll heed the warning, but the reality is, in my experience, is they don't. If they're spiritually unhealthy or they're spiritually immature, they're not going to let those elements pass by. And a big part of that is because if they let it pass by and people see it, it's grounds for juicy gossip. Like, hey, how did, why did those two people allow it to pass? What's their sin? And so most folks will participate in the elements, even if they know they shouldn't, simply because of peer pressure. Now you might say, well, that's on them. But that's not the heart of a shepherd. The true shepherd is always looking to defend and protect the sheep under his care. I cannot stand by and pretend that that's not happening. That people are eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. And I'm allowing it by not overseeing the table as a shepherd in the church. So at Oak Hill, we want to provide oversight to communion in such a way that the following things take place. Number one, again, only true believers are present. Number two, the entire body comes to the table as one without division or strife. And number three, that the sheep are all protected from eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. Now imagine this is a solution. What if a church were of the right size where the shepherds had the ability to know their sheep well and to know what was actually happening in their lives? What if the shepherds were so deeply involved in body life that they were aware whenever conflict came up, that they could help to facilitate reconciliation before the next communion service? And what if the sheep made a formal commitment to submit to their shepherds and to put the needs of others before their own? And what if these shepherds had a process by which they could carefully discern whether the sheep were true believers or not? Question, would those things be helpful in preserving the Lord's table in a way that pleases God and builds up the body? Here at Oak Hill, we think it, it, we think it does. And that's what we call guarding the communion table. Guarding the table. And this is something the church has always done, so we're not making this up out of whole cloth. The early church, the historical record tells us that the table was carefully guarded in the first 400 years of the church. We know that guarding the table was then reinstituted by the reformers in their day, and we know that it was standard practice among the Puritans when they came over here to America. In fact, up until recent history in the 20th century, when things began to get squishy and casual, the church was always concerned with guarding the spiritual integrity of the Lord's Supper. And it's always been the responsibility of the shepherds to do it. So here at Oak Hill, we take that historical charge seriously. Not because the elder team wants to lord our power over others. That's often, we're accused of that, that we just want to lord our power. No, we do this out of biblical, biblical conviction and out of love. Love, first of all, for Christ, right? To keep his table pure but then love for the flock to protect them and to guide them in the way they should go. That is our calling as shepherds. Now, here's the key. The means by which we do this is through membership. 
Everyone who comes to the communion table at Oak Hill has walked through a membership process with our elders. They have committed themselves to every other member of the body through a signed covenant. So every person at the Lord's table is committed to living life together. Every person is committed to unity. Every person is committed to accountability. Every person is committed to living out the one another's of Scripture and committed to practicing forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what it means to be a member at Oak Hill. And so we don't observe the Lord's table on a Sunday morning because unbelievers might be present or visitors might be with us. We come to the table at a separate member communion service where the shepherds can ensure the integrity of the supper is being maintained. Again, for the glory of Christ first, and secondly, for the protection of the flock. Now, I've heard people say many times, I'm not sure I like this whole idea of membership in the church, Jeff. It feels very exclusive. But guys, membership is such a strong biblical concept. Romans 12.5 says, We who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Melos in the Greek, member. Ephesians 4.25, we're members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12.12, For even as the body is one and it has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. Later in verse 27, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. The verse prior to that, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Listen, 17 times in 1 Corinthians 12 alone, Paul uses the word member. So when people say, I don't like this idea of membership in the church, my response is always, you're going to have to take that up with Paul. So listen, so much more could be said about this topic. The case for membership in the local church is a worthy one, but it is worth a whole sermon series in and of itself. But if you have any questions on that subject, please don't hesitate to reach out to me or to another elder. We'd be happy to sit down with you over a cup of coffee or a good meal and talk about what that means. Amen? Let's pray together.